So through the course of this summer, we've been engaged in this study called Name Dropping, a study of the names of God, because the way God worked throughout Scripture is that occasionally He would reveal a new name. Now we all know that God's personal name is Yahweh. It's a name given to Moses specifically in Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush. It's a name that means I am. (coughs) Excuse me. And this was God's personal name. But throughout the Bible, God added on to this name for us to get a better understanding of who he is. And the thing is, when you want to know someone intimately, when you want to know someone personally, one of the first things you do is you get to know their name. And we've seen many names this summer, and I'm certain for some of you, you're ready for this series to end. You're ready to get off of the names of God and on to something else. But for others of you, I know because you've personally told me you've enjoyed this study. Well, just so you know, this is our next to last name. We will conclude this series next Sunday with one final name of God. But let's review for a moment. One of the first names we encountered of God was Yahweh Yireh, which was the name that Abraham gave to God when that substitutionary sacrifice was uh, prepared by God to replace Isaac on that altar. And Abraham, in that moment, worshipped the one he called Yahweh Provides. And then we encountered a name that God gave to himself. God identified himself as Yahweh Rapha. When he healed that bitter water at Marah in order to make it drinkable for his children. And he then told them that he is Yahweh who heals. And then Moses called God Yahweh Nissi after Israel's divinely orchestrated victory over the Amalekites. And that moment of triumph, that moment of victory, all Moses could say is Yahweh is our banner, which means Yahweh is the one for whom we fight and from whom our victories come. And then God identified himself again as Yahweh in Kadesh. He did this on a couple of, com- of occasions as he communicated the covenant requirements via Moses. And, and as he gave Israel his expectations for them, his expectations for them to be different, for them to be set apart, for them to be sanctified, he then said it was because he is Yahweh who sanctifies or Yahweh who is holy and makes you holy. And then just a a few weeks ago, we saw that Gideon called God Yahweh Shalom when he built an altar to him after being called to deliver the Israelites out of oppression from the Midianites. And in that moment, Gideon worshipped the one he called Yahweh is peace because such peace was going to be brought by Yahweh. And the prophets, the prophets frequently referred to God as Yahweh Sabaoth, which means the Lord of hosts. It references the fact that there are angels at his disposal. It references the fact that all the starry hosts were created by him. And these references to God as Yahweh of hosts reminds the prophets that there is always hope because God is always above. And last week, we saw that David identified God as Yahweh-Rohi. Because throughout his life, David noticed that Yahweh had always cared for him 
like a shepherd cares for his feet, his sheep. And so David referred to him as Yahweh, the shepherd. Today, let us turn our attention to another name, and it might just be the hardest of these names to pronounce. It's a name that only appears twice in the entire Bible, and both times are in the book of Jeremiah. The first time it appears is Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5 through 6, which we read just a moment ago, where after pronouncing criticism and condemnation on the leaders of Israel for their failures, God declared that he would raise up for David a righteous branch, branch that would reign as king and deal wisely and execute justice and righteousness and would save Judah and Israel. And this is the name by which he will be called, God says. Yahweh, the Lord, is our righteousness. The other appearance of this name is actually just 10 chapters later, Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 14 through 16. It's in nearly an identical text that provides the same promise in which God would cause a righteous branch to spring up from David, who will execute justice and righteousness and thereby save Judah. And once again, this righteous branch will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. And the name that is translated as, The Lord is our righteousness, is Yahweh Sidikenu. The Lord is our righteousness. Yahweh Sidkenu. And this name, Yahweh Sidkenu, it communicates the fact that God is our Savior. Now, before we go any further, it might be beneficial for us to define righteousness here. One contemporary dictionary defines righteousness as acting in accord with divine or moral law or, or the state of being free from guilt or sin. Now, that's a, that's a pretty good definition, actually. But biblically speaking, righteousness is associated with more than just one's actions. It, it is, as one biblical scholar pointed out, a desire to see God's standards established and obeyed in every area of life. A desire to see God's standards established and obeyed in every area of life. Not a particular area, not just one area, not just in how you act, but also in your mindset, in your desires, in your will, in your purpose, and in your heart. And I think this understanding of righteousness coincides with a statement made by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 6. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, we have this famous passage where Moses calls upon the Israelites to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might in verse 5. And in verse 6, he goes on to say that God's law should be on their heart. And in verse 8, he metaphorically says it should be on their hands with the... um, Binding of his law to their hands. It's an allusion to the might, to their might. Love the Lord with all your might. That means ingraining his word, his will, his law, his commands into your hands, into your source of strength. 
And then he will metaphorically say they need to ingrain his word and his law on their minds by saying it should be frontlets between their eyes, that his word should be so attached right there at the forehead, right there where the source of vision is, right there where the mind is. And just as Moses is saying, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your mind and with all of your might, he's in turn saying, may it be so ingrained on your heart and on your mind and on your might. But then I want you to notice what he says when he gets down to verse 24 and 25 in this same chapter. Moses has basically told the Israelites that when God's will is all that you love, all that you think about, and all that you do, it will be righteousness for you. See, in verse 24 and 25, Moses says, The Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day, and it will be righteousness for us. If we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us. If God's will is all that you love, if God's will is all that you think about, if God's will is all that you do, if it consumes your heart, your mind, and your might, that's righteousness. And I think that's why Jesus identified righteousness as something we're to hunger and thirst for in the Beatitudes. And why he instructed us in the Sermon on the Mount to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. But isn't that easier said than done? Maybe that's precisely why God identified himself as Yahweh Sidkenu. Because there are three very bold statements about God implied in this name. And I have to admit that, that the observation I'm about to make are not original to me. But we need to notice the power of Yahweh Sidkenu. The power of this name as it relates to the concept of righteousness. And I want to begin with this. The name Yahweh Sidkenu implies that righteousness is intrinsic, is intrinsic to God. You know, throughout this series, we've noticed that some of God's names address his activity in our lives, such as Yahweh Rapha, which talks about his healing, or Yahweh Yidere, which talks about his provision. But then there are some names that address his attributes. For example, Yahweh Imkadesh emphasized his holiness, and Yahweh Sidkenu falls in that category. Just as God is the standard for love, according to 1 John, and God is the standard for goodness, according to Jesus, who declared that no one is good except God. And God is the standard for holiness, as Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, when he called on us to be holy as he is holy. God's the standard for love. God's the standard for goodness. God's the standard for holiness, but God is also the standard for righteousness. Righteousness is the very essence of his character. And this is important because it means God must be righteous in all of his dealings with you and with me. Now, I'm certain there have been times in some of our lives when we have felt like God wasn't very right in his dealings with us. That there may have been times in your life where you felt like God wasn't quite fair in how he handled something for you. Or, or that God wasn't very loving in his treatment of you. 
There are times when some of us experience something other than what we think is right from God. But the Bible consistently declares that everything God does is right. This is especially true when you journey through the book of Psalms. The psalmists declare at least three things about God's righteousness. First, they declare that God's laws are righteous. If you go to Psalm chapter 119, it is the longest chapter in the Bible. It is this beautifully orchestrated psalm that praises the word of God. And the repeated declaration throughout Psalm 119 is that God's laws are righteous. At least seven times in that one chapter, there's reference made to righteous laws. Among those references are verse 7, which says, I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. And then verse 75 says, I know, Lord, that your laws are righteous. And verse 137 says, you are righteous, Lord, and your laws are right. And the point that the psalmist is making is that God has made no mistakes when it comes to to his laws. When it comes to his rules, when it comes to his commands, they are always right. Now, many today don't agree with that. Some people will say that his stance on homosexuality is incorrect, or his rules about male spiritual leadership is wrong, or his commands regarding marriage, divorce, and remarriage are unfair. But the Bible, which, which is our source of truth, which is capable of training us for righteousness. It declares that all of God's laws are righteous, even the ones that you don't understand or the ones you don't agree with. Just because you don't understand them or you don't agree with them does not mean they aren't righteous. God's laws are all righteous, and so are his actions. David said in Psalm 65 and verse 5, you answer us with awesome and righteous deeds. In Psalm 71 verse 15 says, my mouth will tell of your righteous acts. And finally in Psalm 145 and verse 17, David praised Yahweh because he is righteous in all his ways. And the point that the psalmists are making is that everything God does is righteous. That might be hard to wrap your mind around when you journey through Scripture and you see a guy named Uzzah trying to stabilize an ark on a cart and he gets struck down. That may be hard for your mind to wrap around when you see cities, read about cities like Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed. But everything God does is righteous. When it came to Sodom and Gomorrah, it's because of their unrighteousness. It's because of the lack of justice that had been enforced there. It's because God was righteous and they were not. When it came to Uzzah, it's because those individuals involved in the transportation of that ark weren't following God's plan, God's orders, God's instructions for its transportation. God's actions... God's ways, God's deeds are always righteous. 
It just might take some effort on our part to understand it. And finally, the book of Psalms declares that God's judgments are righteous. In Psalm chapter 7 and verse 11, David identified God as a righteous judge. You know, and that title will be repeated by Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8. And in Psalm chapter 9 and verse 8, David says that God judges the world with righteousness. An assertion that gets repeated in both Psalm chapter 96 and verse 13 and chapter 98 verse 9. And when Paul preached to the philosophers in Athens, that was his declaration. He said in Acts chapter 17 verse 31 that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. You see, God's very essence is righteousness. He's going to do what's right regardless of what you do. He's going to do right if you do what's right. And he's going to do right if you do what's wrong. Nothing you do can keep God from doing what's right. And in the end, when all of us stand before him and his righteous judgment is revealed, as Romans chapter 2 and verse 5 says, we will know and we will acknowledge that he is always right. Because his judgments are righteous. And that's really the first thing you need to know about God, about Yahweh Sidkenu. Righteousness is intrinsic to his character. That means he's the standard of righteousness, and that means everything produced from him is righteous. And that sets us up for understanding the second thing we need to know about this name, Yahweh Sidkenu. The second thing you need to know about this name is that it implies that righteousness is unattainable for you. The name is the Lord is our righteousness. That means apart from the Lord, you're unrighteous. And that can be a hard thing to accept for some people. Because for some people, they think righteousness is attainable. That they can do enough or be enough to earn righteousness. And oftentimes people like that have a tendency to not understand comparisons. Oftentimes individuals who are self-righteous have a tendency to compare themselves to other people as their standard of righteousness. In other words, instead of comparing themselves to God, who is the standard of righteousness, they choose to find somebody else that they can compare themselves to. And the problem with that is anytime you're comparing yourself to another flawed and fallen human being, your standard is way too low. We have an example of this in Scripture, actually. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector who go to the temple to pray. And it's so fascinating because the way Luke introduces this parable in Luke chapter 18 and verse 9 is with these words, that Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. What Luke is saying is that Jesus told this parable to a bunch of people who were self-righteous 
who were righteous only because they compared themselves to other sinful people and said, I'm more righteous than that person. And as the parable goes, a parable that you may be familiar with, it says two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus concluded the parable by saying, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. When you look at the Pharisee in this parable, he's so busy comparing himself to other men, even to the tax collector he sees at the temple. But when the tax collector prays to God, he doesn't compare himself to other people. He simply compares himself to God. And the only thing he can see when he makes that comparison is that he is a sinner. You see, the question you have to ask yourself is, who am I comparing myself to when it comes to righteousness? Am I trying to find somebody that I can feel better than because I'm more righteous than they? And that builds me up to feeling like I have righteousness. Or are you comparing yourself to God? See, I don't think that the Pharisee was lying when he said that he fasted twice a week and gave a tenth of all he owned. I bet he did those things. But I know that the Pharisee was not legitimized when he compared himself to the tax collector. Because Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 6 says this, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are a filthy garment. No matter how many righteous things you do, it's never enough. Because one sin clouds all of that. One sin taints all of your righteousness. Because it only takes one sin to be deemed unrighteous. And that's why in Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, Paul, using references from the book of Psalms, declared this. There is no one righteous not even one, because we've all sinned or will sin and fall short of the glory of God. That's what the Pharisee in this parable didn't acknowledge. He was so busy comparing himself to a low standard that he failed to see just how useless his attempts at righteousness were when compared to the high standard of God. And the point is that no matter how righteous our intentions are, and no matter how many righteous deeds we do, our righteousness is filthy compared to the standard of God's righteousness. Because there is no one righteous, not even one. Righteousness for you and I is unattainable on our own. But that leads us to this final declaration, this final implication of the name Yahweh Sidkenu. And that is that the name Yahweh Sidkenu implies that righteousness must be transferred to us from God. Again, the name is 
Yahweh is our righteousness. Now, that name does not say you are righteous because you're not. And that name does not declare that God is righteous even though he is. That name declares that God will be your righteousness and my righteousness. But how is that possible? It's important to note that the name Yahweh Sidkenu is used in the context of a messianic prophecy back in Jeremiah chapter 23 and 33. When God spoke through Jeremiah about a righteous branch of David that will reign over his people and save his people, he was talking about the Messiah. He was talking about Jesus who was identified in the preaching of Peter and Stephen and Paul as the righteous one. And that means that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the name Yahweh Sidkenu. But how? As has already been mentioned, every one of us fails at righteousness because every one of us is guilty or will be guilty of sin at some point in time. And that creates a dilemma for us because the Bible makes it clear that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, as 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9 says. And since every one of us falls in the category of unrighteous because of our sins, what that verse is saying is that in our state of unrighteousness, we can't inherit the kingdom of God. And that's compounded when you read the parable of the sheep and the goats. There's a separation of the righteous from the unrighteous on the day of judgment, according to that parable. The righteous, represented by sheep, will be sent to the right side of the Son of God. And there, they'll be invited, they'll be welcomed into the kingdom. But then the goats, who are representative of the unrighteous, are sent to the left. And they're told to depart. They're told that they're not known by our Savior. And according to the conclusion of that parable, the righteous represented by the sheep, they will go away into eternal life, while the unrighteous represented by the goats will go away into eternal punishment. That's our dilemma. We are incapable of obtaining righteousness on our own, and so that means our destination is eternal punishment. See, what happens for many of us, I'm afraid, is that we have a perception of the day of judgment. That one day we'll stand before God and next to him will be this giant set of scales. And he'll take all the good we've ever done and put it on one side of the scale. And all the bad we've ever done and put it on the other side of the scale. And he'll watch to see which way it tips. I can tell you which way it's going to tip. It's always going to tip towards the bad. Because you can't do enough to offset the bad you've done, the wrong you've done, the sin you've committed, the unrighteousness that's part of who you are because of your sin. You can't do enough to offset it. But that's a flawed concept of what the day of judgment will be like. It's flawed because it's not quite biblical, but it's also flawed because it's not quite practical. Because if we view the day of judgment as, uh, hey, there's going to be a set of scales and, and there's a certain amount of bad God will allow if there's enough good to offset it, 
then we're saying that our God, who is 100% righteous, can handle a little bit of unrighteousness. But that's not our God. Our God is not accepting of a little bit of unrighteousness as long as there's enough righteousness to offset it. A more biblically accurate understanding of what the day of judgment will be like can be found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What Paul says is that through Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice on the cross, Jesus created an opportunity for us to exchange our unrighteousness for his righteousness, so that when we stand before God on the day of judgment, there is no need for a scale to even be present. Because of what Christ has done, we are in him, as this passage says. If we are in him, there is no unrighteousness attached to us. If we are in him, we bear his righteousness like an outer garment covering those filthy rags of righteousness that we've tried to wear for so long. If we are in Him, we don't have to fear the day of judgment. If we are in Him, there's no scale because there's only righteousness attached to us. And that's why Peter wrote these words in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. We can appear before God because Christ appeared on the cross. Think about it this way. One preacher said, the essence of sin is that you substituted yourself for God. Meaning, you dethroned God. When you chose to sin, you chose to make yourself king. You chose to live for yourself. You took the place that God deserved in your life. But the essence of salvation, that preacher went on to say, is that God substituted himself for you. God sacrificed himself and put himself in the place that only you deserved. The essence of sin is that you substituted yourself for God. The essence of salvation is that God substituted himself for you. That's the beauty of Yahweh Sidkenu. The Lord is our righteousness because the Lord took our place. And in taking our place, he took away our unrighteousness. He took away our filthy rags. Now, in preparation for this lesson, I came across this Chinese, this traditional Chinese character. It's the Chinese character for righteousness. But what was so fascinating about this, and of course I'm no expert in Chinese, but I did consult one, Miss Josie. I reached out to her and she helped me with this to make sure. The Chinese character 
the traditional Chinese character, I should probably clarify it that way, the traditional Chinese character for righteousness is the combination of two other Chinese characters. One is the character for sheep or lamb. The other is the character for me. And when the character for the sheep or lamb is placed over the top of the character for me, you make the character for righteousness. Now, this character did not necessarily develop because of ancient Chinese people's understanding of the Bible. There's other reasons given. But how beautiful is it that that one character in the traditional Chinese language conveys the very essence of the gospel. That when the Lamb of God covers you, all God can see is righteousness. When the precious blood of Christ is covering you, Christ who is our Passover lamb, when his blood covers you, all God can see is righteousness. That's why our God is Yahweh Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. But you know, the only way to get that blood covering you is by being buried in the waters of baptism where you come in contact with it. Maybe today you haven't made that decision. We want to invite you to do that, to confess your belief that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God, to repent of your sins, and to be buried in those waters so that your sins can be washed away. But maybe you're here having made that decision before, and you ventured back into the realm of unrighteousness. And you need to return to the Father, like that tax collector at the temple. And request his mercy again. Because you are a sinner. If you haven't been born into Christ. Or if you're an erring sheep. Now's your opportunity to make it right. And we invite you to come while together we stand and sing.